0: Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannan. This podcast is brought to you by LarryInFishers.com. Check out my local Fishers, Indiana news blog. You can find it at LarryInFishers.com. You can also sign up on the blog to receive an email alert every time I post a news story. Also... You can follow me on Twitter at Larry in Fishers. Today's podcast was recorded at the Ignite Space in the lower level of the Hamilton East Library in downtown Fishers. If you haven't been to Ignite, check it out anytime the library is open. Any of the Ignite staff members will be happy to provide a tour for you. Mike Reuter has been a longtime administrator for Hamilton Southeastern Schools. Mike is preparing to retire at the close of 2019. I asked Mike to join me for a talk about his career with local schools and what might be coming for him and for the local school corporation. I spoke with Mike Reuter during the afternoon of Friday, December 6th. At the basement of the Hamilton East Library in downtown Fishers, I am with Mike Reuter. And Mike Reuter has been, for many years, the chief financial officer for the Hamilton Southeastern School Corporation, and that will end uh, just literally days after we talk with Mike. So, Mike, thanks for agreeing to come in one last time and talk about your job as CFO. Thank you, Larry. Always good to see you. Um I I guess the first question I would ask you because I I look back over the last few years, I've I've been covering the HSC schools, and there are always two people that I could always go to for historical information Mike Beresford and you. Right. Beresford's now taking the job next door uh, in Carmel as the superintendent. You're preparing to retire in just a few more days. I guess you would agree to talk about history if you wanted to, if I wanted to ask you, but yet internally, I would have to say between the two of you, you have lost a lot of institutional knowledge at the school corporation.
1: Well, well, that's right. Um, however, the person that's replacing me, Cecily Nunn, she she will be excellent. She and I have worked together for 22 years, and so uh, we work very closely together. She She also has a lot of history, maybe not quite as deep as I have uh, but she she's certainly has a historical perspective.
0: The year I moved to Fishers was 1991, and my uh, twin daughters ended up uh, in starting school in the mid to late 90s. And I I, I want you to do – I do this a lot, but I want you to do it from your perspective. Talk about the Fishers that you do, and particularly the HSC school system, which is more than Fishers. Uh, Talk about the school system that you saw when you walked in the door uh, when you started doing financial work there in 1994.
1: Right. Um, there, were, there were about 4,000 students at the time. and Compared uh, to today's? Compared to today's over 22,000 students. Just so, so people have a perspective right, there. Right. right uh, so more than five times the size we were when I first started there. Um, I actually started at Hampton Southeastern as a financial consultant and uh, was a consultant to Dr. Leonard, the superintendent at the time. I uh, did that for about a year and a half, and uh, he uh, offered me a position because he realized that the community was on that verge of explosive growth, and he was looking for somebody that to, to come and do something full-time. And um, I agreed to that with the condition that I could continue to do consulting work on the side. And so uh, the school boards and the and the superintendents that followed Chuck Leonard um, were very gracious to allow me to continue to do that. But the district back then had and obviously a much different feel. Um, I knew obviously central office was much smaller than what it is today. And I knew a lot of the teachers and a lot of the support staff. And um, I think we may have had five elementaries at that time. And now we have 13 elementaries to give you some perspective. Uh, So I I would describe the district back then um, as vibrant with growth, yet had this rural feel to it. And uh, it was just very comfortable to me. I grew up on a farm, yet I liked being close to the city. And so uh, it had that feel for me and my family when we also moved here in 1991. Mm -hmm. Our our first home here uh, was off of hay Road in Berkeley Grove,
0: yeah, Sunblust was our home. Right, my wife had built it new actually before we met, and then we ended up getting married. Uh, she preferred to live in in that house rather than my tiny apartment in Irvington, right? So <laughs> in Indianapolis Eastside. So, right. uh, yeah, we. Uh, uh, I think, and, in fact, at first I thought, why. I asked Jane this actually. Why did you build in Fishers? Right. Which at that time was still kind of known as right. a rural community. It sure was. And she said, oh, don't worry. It's going to grow. As usual, my wife was right. Right. normally is. <laughs> especially on real estate and that sort of thing. And and it, I have seen this this whole community grow. One thing that people need to keep in mind, and we're going to get into this this in a moment, is that uh, HSE schools takes in a bigger area than the city? It takes in all the sure. unincorporated areas of Delaware and Falkirk townships, but it also takes in all of Wayne Township. And we're going to talk more a little about that because that that whole dynamic is is changing a lot. Sure. Uh, I, I remember talking to Mike Beresford about this before he left. And you look at the massive growth that happened since you and I moved here, and you have started working here in '94. I've only been covering the school system for about. What nine years? But I certainly was following it before that, with my daughters going to school here, K through twelve through HSE schools. Sure. But when you, as that massive growth came on after you started here, I just can't imagine the challenges that you faced. It's like trying to fly a sh- uh, an airplane and, and try to, you know, build it as you're in flight, because right. you're, the schools go on, the, the all these young people keep coming into the community. And, mm-hmm. and your job is to keep everything afloat and try to keep the standards side, which I talked to Mike Beresford about. But on your end is just keeping the finances in shape. Right. And you've had some ups and ups and downs in a financial uh, situation that you've seen so much over the years. Just uh, in your own words, tell me about management of the growth and, and how the state funding formula works into that, and how you've had to manage all that as a school corporation.
1: Right. Uh, so. Um, the as you pointed out that the growth just from 1994 escalated, you know, suddenly we were growing 500 students. Suddenly we were growing 600 students and in the late 90s, early 2000, we hit thousand students a year for almost three years in a row. And to give you some perspective, at the time we were designing elementaries to house 620 kids. And so we were growing,
0: that's two elementaries. Right, two almost elementaries. two elementaries.
1: Yeah. And um, the demographics of the district back then, uh, when you looked at the number of kids per household, uh, we were averaging 0.8 kids for every household in Fishers. It was a very young community, as you'll remember. Uh, of course, back then, there was only one store, Marsh, on <laughs> Allisonville Road. That's right. I remember and, it well. And every aisle was full of a, a stroll or a. a a mother with a child in the cart and pregnant, and and so there were so many young families moving to this area at the time, and so um, it, staying ahead of that was a real challenge. Just having the seats available, you know, getting the buildings anticipating the growth far enough in advance that you were building uh, just enough seats for those students that were coming in. Um, over that time, we used a lot of. Portables some people like to call them cottages to spice them up or dress them up a little bit um, but um, and, and some of the community over those years criticized us for not planning far enough in advance like you know all this growth is coming why aren't you why aren't you building more buildings and instead of using these portables? Well the reality is is the funding formula was driving a lot of that decision, and so we were funded by the number of pupils that we had not by the number of buildings or seats that were available. And so we were always trying to operate as at the most efficient optimum level that we could, because when you open an elementary, you're hiring a principal, uh, now an assistant principal, an art, music, PE, librarian, and if you if you um, have 600 kids or 700 kids in that building, it's much more efficient than if you have 300 kids in that building. And so I would describe it as just in time. We would open space. We would uh, expand into the portables. We'd open new space. We'd come out of the portables. We would expand back into the portables, and we'd come back out of the portables.
0: And the key, I think you mentioned this, is that you don't want empty spaces. Right. So you want to be optimal. But on the, So that was the reason. I remember John DeLucia telling me before he got on the board, thinking, why don't these people ever do any exactly. planning? Why and all these portables? And finally, we got on the school board. He goes oh, we do a lot of planning. I just didn't understand. you know. Now you got a better perspective of that and, and how well you try to plan without having a lot of empty chairs and, exactly. and empty classrooms at the same time. That's a very difficult thing to manage. I can't even imagine 1,000 students a year. Right. And it was for at least three years that yes. happened. My goodness. Yeah,
1: over 1,000 students a year. Yeah, so that,
0: that's... And just so people know, I have to tell you something. I, I covered education in Columbus, Indiana from the late 70s, early 80s. And I got to know the the funding mechanisms and so forth the state had set up. And strangely enough, when I came back and started covering education again after all those years, there wasn't much different. I mean, they'd start the transportation fund when I was still covering Columbus schools. And and here, you still had pretty much the same. I mean, there were a few little tinkerings here and there, but you had the basic same system that had existed at that time. You had a building fund. You had a general fund. You had a transportation fund. You had a rainy day fund. And, and the, the, that was all being managed. Now things have changed dramatically. Right. Talk, talk about that change.
1: Sure. Yeah, so we're still growing right now, but I would describe our district as stabilizing. Um, there are a lot of people like you and I here, that have raised our kids, and yet we're living in Fishers. And so we're taking those households that might have otherwise been backfilled by a younger family. And so you can't really tell anyone on the east side of the district we're not growing. Uh, But really, when you look at the K-4 enrollment, we're not growing. Um, We opened Southeastern Elementary this year not as a result of growth so much as we did when we passed the referendum, the last operating referendum, and we had made the commitment to uh, reduce class sizes. We hired a lot of teachers. And so when that happened, then we we moved forward with a building that we had originally approved in a referendum in 2010. Um, But we grew about 275 uh, students this last year, and that would sound like a lot to many districts. But for us, that's 1%. And That's actually a really nice spot to be in.
0: We are the fourth largest school system in the state, which is just amazing to me thinking about where we started when I got here. Right. Basically a, a a little bit larger than normal rural school district that was beginning to grow. and then, you know, what happened, you've already described that. I want to talk about one thing, and I, and I want you to talk about this because I'm seeing an awful lot of comments on social media. That's dangerous, I know. right. But uh, there's been a lot of criticism of the demographer, Jerry McKibben's been the demographer here for years. And as I understand it, and you can clarify a little bit more, there were more kindergartners than expected at Southeastern Elementary. And that's, as you have mentioned in many school board meetings i sat through, that's the hardest thing to predict, Right. kindergarten class. Once you have that, you can do a better job of figuring out where it's still going to go through the system. A lot of people have been critical, saying that uh, the d- demographic projections have been off. That's never a precise science. You do the best you can. I'm just curious, you run those numbers as well. You work closely with Dr. McKibben when he does these, and there's been a lot of criticism that, that you know we're, we're seeing all this growth, and now we have portables again in mm. several schools. Uh, elementary school is going to have those next year. Explain to me uh, how that demographic process works from your point of view, what you're asking the demographer to do, and how you feel he has done in his projections.
1: Right. So uh, we, we just received a new demographic report from Dr. McKibben. Uh, the last one was two years prior to that, and it was prior to redistricting. And he actually was not hired uh, to forecast Southeastern. Mm-hmm. He 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 his forecast, his previous forecast was prior to Southeastern. And when you look at his numbers in total, um, he is off less than one percent from the last. Forecast,
0: Which is well within the margin of error for these projections. Correct.
1: So Southeastern was a surprise to all of us in that we have never seen a kindergarten class the size of Southeastern come in behind us, such a smaller first grade or second grade or third grade class. So it's about 50 more students than even even the first, second, third or fourth grade. So um, there's just a lot of young families in that particular area. Uh when we went through redistricting, that was actually done by cooperative strategies, and so and that's the name of the company right that yes. that is mm-hmm. the company we we use to do the redistricting right so to to clarify uh Dr. McKibben is a demographer and he forecasts the enrollment, but it's really the redistricting process that resulted in in the outcomes. We actually ended up with a fewer fewer number of students at Cumberland Road than we wanted to. Um, And so, but we ended up with more at Southeastern. Uh, We originally estimated that we left the capacity at 80% in Southeastern based on uh, the enrollment that was in that area. Uh, But what we couldn't see are those number of kindergartners that were coming in. And so uh, Dr. McKibben has updated his demography report based on this last fall. And uh, he does see another large kindergarten coming behind that large kindergarten at Southeastern, uh, which is prompting the conversation of um, of replacing Durban Elementary and, and constructing another elementary yet on the east side. Um, so, which
0: technically will be in the city of Noblesville. In Wayne Township. So that's – just so people know, that they think of Fishers and HSE. We're seeing growth in Wayne Township for the first time. It's been projected for years. It's actually beginning to happen now. So uh, when people think of Fishers and HSE, that's largely true. But it actually is beginning to – on the the, uh, eastern edge of Noblesville as it kind of uh, creeps into Wayne Township. That's actually, and, and people I uh, don't think are aware of the fact that that's HSC schools up there, and that's right. going to remain to be HSC schools. Right. We,
1: we're, we represent three townships Delaware, Fall Creek, and Wayne, and we're not, um, we're, we don't have boundaries based on zip codes. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they're, uh, the city of Noblesville is annexing into Wayne Township. Uh, But they're already in Fall Creek Township as well, Mm -hmm. and a little portion of Delaware Township. Mm -hmm. Many people don't realize that.
0: And and this is a trick question for people. They they talk about Hamilton Town Center. Uh, When you have a referendum – we'll talk more about referendums in a moment – but even if you have a TIF uh, benefit, you still have to pay referendum taxes. And Hamilton Town Center is not in the Noblesville. It's in the city of Noblesville, but it is not in the Noblesville school system. All of the referendum money generated by property taxes at Hamilton Town Center and that whole area around there, most of it, that goes to HSC schools. That's correct. Which and and so that's, that's that, right. that is a jagged. Uh, how should I put it? A jagged uh, boundary there in terms of the school between Noblesville and, right. and HSC. But uh, yeah, that I always mention that to people that don't believe me. Right now, I get it verified from the CFO. That is correct.
1: That is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I there's so much to talk about. I, I want to ask you about one particular period of time when I began, uh, you know, covering the schools and. Roughly 2012, I started coming to school board meetings on a regular basis. That was right after what most people are calling the Great Recession, after 2008. A very famous uh, action taken by the then-Governor Mitch Daniels. The the state was starting to hemorrhage money. He had to find ways to save money, and one of the first things he did was cut uh, the spending to local school corporations, from the state, after having changed the system to greatly produce money from the state to the school corporation, you know, and many years ago, you know, school corporations raised their property taxes if they wanted to uh, to build a building or raise money for their teachers. They would do it themselves. There was a process, but they started that process. Mitch Daniels decided to change that system to where a lot of that money that goes to teachers and its personnel and so a few other things but once called the general fund now call something else right that is uh, uh that's gonna be funded by the state and right after that happened we had this huge recession and the governor said we've got to cut spending and really the local school corporations had little or no mechanism to fix that and, and we've had referendums since, but I'll, I'll talk more about that in a moment. But at that particular time, right around 2012, I started coming to meetings. And that's when school corporation really had to make some pretty tough decisions. Talk about how you managed as a school corporation with you being the CFO, being at the head of running numbers and giving administrators and decision makers options. Talk about that whole process. That was very painful. Every meeting I went to, it was really tough to listen to what you were going through at that time.
1: Right. Um, uh, As the budget began to tighten up, um, I was able to manage things for a period of time by tweaking here and maybe tweaking there. But really, in 2009, um, we had a new superintendent, Dr. Smith, uh, that had just joined us, and we awaited the school funding formula um, to come out in 2009, which would have been for calendar year 2010 funding at the time. and. Um, I don't know if you recall or not, but they went into a special session mm-hmm. that year because things were really tight. Yet they were trying to put more dollars into the budget uh, to help schools, uh, and so we 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 awaited that funding form. Very, very on edge the entire time. And as soon as they made their decision on what kind of dollars um, they were going to provide to schools, we went into a referendum mode, and so we established. Uh, what we saw as our need, our shortfall that we were trying to make up in in August that year. So, school funding form is decided in June. By August, we had to decide what we were going to ask the community to to pay for, and and get on that November uh, ballot. And ultimately, we decided on a five million dollar referendum uh, back then, only uh, to be surprised that the revenue forecasts that were included in the budget when they determined the school funding formula, uh, they were not hitting their targets in a very short period of time. And by January 1st, 2010, Governor Daniels was forced to make the decision to cut K-12 education, almost wiping out the entire benefit uh, of the referendum. Now, I will say that if we didn't have the referendum, things could have been far worse. Uh, But, uh, class sizes had finally gotten to the point that uh, the parents were not comfortable. And so we began to um, to reduce expenses yet again. And that, as you said, that was a very painful process. I, but
0: as I recall, the health insurance was the big money sale. You had a whole list of, of budget uh, reductions and you had committees. You had a lot of people who were – Involved right. in that. I mean, and, and so there, there were a lot of people who had put their two cents worth in. And and in the end, uh, as I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, the biggest bite that was taken out of the budget had to do with health insurance and coal paste. And, and that seemed to be the biggest pain that uh, people on the staff felt.
1: Yeah, we eliminated uh, some benefits for for the instructional assistants. Uh, we did grandfather those that were in, but we had stopped offering benefits. And so, yeah, we were making some really tough decisions. And, it, and at that point, I realized it just couldn't be me to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. And we had a rather large group, a group of about 35 of us, that would get around a table, and everybody would – We would allow them to make their anonymous recommendations, and that included um, facilities, athletic directors, transportation, teachers, a couple board members, certainly myself and and Cecily uh, were there at the table. And so we had middle school principals, we had elementary principals, high school principals, trying to have someone at the table that represented all aspects of the budget so that as we began to look for things to reduce, uh, that everybody heard that conversation and that they could communicate that everybody was having to give up something Mm -hmm. and that it wasn't just Mike Reuter making these decisions. And uh, we actually had a scoring system. Uh, We would allow everyone to submit their suggestions and we had a one, two or three. Uh, If, if the group voted one on that suggestion and it was a, a, a legitimate expense that we could reduce uh, without affecting the the silos as you described earlier with the different funds uh, that was the first on the list to go and then if we didn't hit enough of our cut uh, we would go to the twos what people had ranked as number twos and threes were kind of our last resort Uh, but it was a difficult time i was going through some of my old files the other day and and saw those old budget reduction committee files, mm-hmm. <laughs> and wow. it was year after year.
0: Well, you you would
1: give reports
0: to the school board, and, and I could see the pain in your face right. and in other people and some of the board members that were at these meetings saying, we, we got some difficult decisions to make. But yet on the other hand, I hear Alan Borf talk. Alan Borf, our current superintendent, was at Richmond at that time, and he said, okay, you may, you didn't get all the things you wanted from your referendum, We didn't have that. And in Richmond, we closed buildings. We laid off staff. We didn't have to do that.
1: Right. Uh, Well, in a growing district, how you manage that is you don't hire as many Mm -hmm. as you need. Mm -hmm. So as you uh, pick up students, you hold back on the new hires, and ultimately that ends up in the classroom, right? That was the number one priority when we were going through that process is protect the classroom to the greatest degree possible. Uh, We were trying to cut everything that we could away from the from the classroom. But ultimately, when you look at a school budget, it's personnel, it's teachers and the support of those teachers. And there's only so far you can go with that. And so we were we would slightly um, increase class size each year.
0: Quite often you can tell the atmosphere of any school corporation by how well the teachers association and the administration get along. And I remember several years ago writing a short piece when I was writing commentaries for Current, and I wrote a piece about how you and Janet Chandler, the president, long-time president of the HSEA Hamilton Southeastern Education Association, when you enter into negotiations, now I've covered them at other school corporations, and I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I covered some school superintendents that were really good about hiding money in their proposed budgets, you know, and the teachers figured this out. What I have found here is an entirely different atmosphere. And Janet Chandler has told me more than once that the one thing she can depend on, getting to know you and running through your numbers, she can always trust your numbers. And if you, at a starting point in your talks with the teachers and the administration, if you know what the numbers are, then it's much easier to get to the end. And, and I have to say, uh, even in Carmel in recent history, they've had some pretty tough negotiations over there. And they're you know, probably just right next door and a, another growing. They're, they had been growing. They're kind of maxed out now. My point being that uh, I would think that with the other things you have to deal with, and with the teachers as well, the fact that you can agree on numbers and go through a negotiating process and come to an agreement fairly quickly, even though the rules have changed some in recent years, Talk about how important that is for the entire community.
1: Right. Um, we, we have been very fortunate in that um, we've built trust between those two to, um, to represent the administration and the teachers association. I've always taken the approach of transparency. I have, do not have numbers to hide. And uh, at the end, we agree. We wanna, we're not a bank. We want to pay you as much as we can pay you. And we want to keep class sizes as small as we can keep them. And so if we both agree to that, this is going to be pretty easy. We're going to show you the money we're going to get, and then we're going to try to figure out what's the best place to put it and how we allocate that without putting us in, in a financial position that would, that would put us in jeopardy. And so um, we've, we've settled a number of contracts uh, over the 25 years, and we'd always done it before school had started. And and that was always our goal, to not start a school year with an unsettled contract. And we've been able to do that. Now, in recent years, uh, legislation has changed such that you can't settle a contract prior to the start of school. But we do a lot of pre-bargaining where we, we have conversations. So when it does come time to bargain, we have our thoughts and, and our information has been shared and then ultimately come to an agreement rather quickly. So... Um, I appreciate Janet she and i don 't always come from the same perspective, but at the end we we do get to the right spot, and uh, it 's our always been our goal to try and keep uh, the business out of the classroom
0: at the last state of the city address uh, got a nice shout out from the mayor i don 't know you say you were surprised and expected I was uh, very surprised you seemed surprised, and uh, he he gave you an award at the city a state of the city address. Uh, I think he wanted to honor you for your many years of service to the community, but I think that says something else because I have, again, covered other communities, and in most places where I have lived or covered, the school system is over here and the city is over there, they sort of leave each other alone. It's never happened here. There's been a, and going back to the days of the town of Fishers, before we became a city, and it's continued through the city, um, uh, the the, the city of Fishers, that these two entities have worked together. And talk about how important that relationship is.
1: Right. Um, You know, early on, I mean, we're all drawing from the same taxpayers, and we should be looking for ways to make ourselves as efficient as possible. Um, And so, you know, some of the early agreements that we came up with that saved us Thousands of dollars uh, with snow removal and ground maintenance. We're a school corporation. I would say we're 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 set up to teach kids. We're not set up to take care of parks and grounds and such. So there there has to be a more efficient way for us to work together on that. And that was one of the early partnerships with the Sea Fishers back the right as you pointed out the town at the time. But we continue to look for ways. Uh, in particular, you know, it's SROs the the sros
0: the uh the police officers right yeah.
1: now school resource officers um those are fisher's police officers uh they share in that cost with the school district and providing those services again just another example of, of providing safety in our buildings where we share some cost uh to to provide that safety and so um w- we've even tried to manage tax rates you know it over those years there were some times where the city actually held their tax rate down the town held their tax rate down so that they knew that we had some needs that we we need to bring ours up a little bit and we tried to balance those things so that we never had uh, one year we had such a, a significant impact on a taxpayer it was always my goal to try and keep taxes as level as possible and you know, that people mortgage, for the most part, a lot of people mortgage their taxes and to keep their mortgage payments from uh, jumping around up and down.
0: Yeah, and you made the point that uh, even with the new elementary school uh, uh, now in the pipeline over there on Bolden, Borden Bowden Road. I'm trying to say it right. right. Bowden Road, 156th Street in in uh, Noblesville. That you're trying to work the finances in such a way that there will be no tax increase as a result. That you've you've tried to manage the finances in such a way, where the new buildings come on, and you don't. You can still manage that that basic tax rate.
1: Correct. I. Uh, uh, Unfortunately, I've been around long enough to see some of the bond issues pay off that I issued 20, <laughs> 25 years ago.
0: Quite, very few people can say that. I hope you know,
1: Right. So those years that we were yeah. growing uh, in such a rapid rate, uh, we were building so many of those buildings, but those are paying off now. And so uh, we, we've hit a crossroads in the, in the sense that we have a lot of bonds that are being paid off. Uh, our student enrollment is slower. Our tax base is growing at a rate of 6%. Which is
0: very big. Right. Yeah.
1: And there was a period of time that when you go back in, into that Great Recession um, uh, that our assessed valuation was flat, yet we were getting all these new students. Mm-hmm. Well, today, if you, 275 students is still a lot of students, but that's only 1%. So we're growing 1% in students, yet our tax base is growing at a rate of 6%.
0: That has got to be good news in terms of right. uh, managing your finances and the taxpayers' right. burden. There, we're getting, running out of time, but I want to ask you about the work you'll still be doing because you will still be uh, contracting with a number of lo- local municipal and other government entities in the area. Uh, you will. Uh, you've worked with the city of Fisher doing uh, income projections for several years, as I recall. Right. And but you're going to also set up a contract. I'm sure it's been drawn up already with the HSC schools once you retire. So talk about uh, Mike Reuter in retirement.
1: Right. Well, um, yeah, I'm a little bit nervous about this uh, doing something for 25 years and then stepping out of that out of that role. But I've actually been working two jobs for for that same period of time and and uh, have built up a, a pretty solid base of clients. Uh, I. I represent counties, cities, towns, townships, libraries, um, and other school corporations. And so, uh, I can I plan to go out and build that a little bit more than where I'm at right now, but not back to the point where I am uh, working two jobs. So I've simply I'm too old to work two jobs, and I'm too young to retire. So uh <laughs> I I will be working another 10 uh, years. I can't afford to retire retire, but I, uh,
0: retirement's not such a bad thing. Right. I mean this is volunteer for me. I do a little work on the side, but nothing like what you plan to do. Right. Uh I but I know one of the main reasons you wanted to retire is to have more time with the grandkids.
1: That's right. I uh, my all three of my children are married and off the family payroll and I have one grandchild uh, that, that'll be 3 in February and another Grandchild on the way in May. Well, so,
0: congratulations and, on that. Matter of fact,
1: were... right after this interview, I'm going to go have dinner or lunch with my wife and my granddaughter.
0: Oh my goodness! We'll make sure you get, we get you out of here on time. Well, Mike, thanks for all your service. I mean, uh, you've been here about the same amount of time I've been here. You know, I can remember, I, and I want to say one more thing before we go. You mentioned Chuck Leonard. You know, I started going to some of the community meetings that went on as the growth was happening, and I would, you know, sometimes people say some pretty crazy things right. at these meetings, and that's okay. I mean, the public has a right to talk. Yeah. But Chuck Leonard was the level head in the room, and, and he just took every question and comment, always responded to it, just a, a consummate I never met him in person, but I've seen him in these large meetings, and I just always admired the way he he handled himself in public.
1: Yeah, Chuck's a, a, a classy guy. I, I also really am thankful that he took a risk on a thirty year old back in nineteen ninety four and uh, gave me that opportunity. But he is he is a, a classic uh, in himself. So he he went through a lot of the growth in in southeastern in in ninety nine and two thousand, and ultimately retired. But uh, I still see him. He's still around. Good for him.
0: And uh, congratulations, Mike Reuter, on a well-deserved retirement. Not a total retirement, but certainly a major cutback in your responsibilities and the workload. And most of all, thank you for joining me today.
1: Well, Larry, thank you. And thank you to the community for allowing me to serve the community and all the school boards and superintendents that I've served over that period of time. It's been a real pleasure.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by LarryInFishers.com. My local news blog follows news in and around the Fishers area, so check it out. Once again, find it at LarryInFishers.com, and you can also follow me on Twitter, at LarryInFishers. My name is Larry Lannon. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again.